Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Super Oh, pay-per-views, premium live events. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody quiz, of course, on wrestle culture. As I said, though, joined by Havlin and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite. And before we even have a chance to talk about this show, gents, how are you both feeling? Let's start with you, Hamlet. Uh, well, much better than I was the last time I had friggin' COVID, basically. Um, big fan of the vaccinations. If we hadn't made that clear, go and get them because you feel... Tons better if you get it. Um, case study, like one versus two. I'd like to be back in work. I'd like to be us around a desk where you could press buttons and doing this sort of stuff. But I'm uh, still pissing hot on the old latty floor. <laughs> so I can't quite yet, but I'm feeling way better than it. And people were very nice on Twitter as well. So thanks everybody for checking in. But yes, mostly fine. Um, COVID's rubbish, but there's ways to make it less so. Do that. Still inexplicably stayed up to watch AEW done last hey, man, night. Like... I don't particularly want to be back working from home regularly, but having to isolate away from doing parental duties and having no commute meant I got, like, relatively speaking, a bit of a lie-in compared to how it's been lately. I had a long <laughs> sleep watching it, and with daylight savings, I feel like I'm up. Oh, yeah, of course, I didn't think about that. Sid, you and I were were a few weeks away from from donating our bodies to science because we've managed to dodge the Rona. How are you feeling? Uh, not great. Um, it's it's just turned into a pretty bad cold, like a really irritating, sapping cold, which has improved from the horrendous flu-like symptoms I was um, experiencing initially. But like, I was honestly a part of me. I hate working from home. I absolutely hate it, right? But a stupid part of me, right, kind of half wanted to get it to get it out of the way at one point. Because I think, obviously the worst thing is the um, the, the mass deaths. The mass deaths and misery of life. That's the worst thing about the Rona. But from a purely subjective point of view, one of the worst things about the coronavirus is everything is tentative, right? Everything is tentative. You say, oh, we'll do this in three weeks' time. Boom, put it in the calendar. Never again, potentially. Like in two, three years ago, I'm thinking, 
I'm putting that on my calendar in three weeks' time. I'm going to go and have fun in three weeks' time. This should be good. I'm going to go and see the lads. I'm going to have a really nice family day out. This is a thing that's happening because I've booked it. The worst thing, or one of the worst things, just from a purely first world problem subjective level is, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go for a drink with my mates unless I get the owner. Can't get excited about anything. Like the, <laughs> the, the prospect of looking forward to things has just completely vanished. Is it the mm. same with you? Yeah. We yeah, always have that hanging over your head of our, it, it might not happen. And in fact, the more you look forward to it, it would be just your luck, sod's law, <laughs> if you were too excited and then you pissed hard. In a weird way, I was thinking, if I could just get it. I don't want it. I hate working from home. It's a logistical nightmare when you're a working parent. But if I could just get it, I know for a fact, like, what, 10 days, just doesn't last that bloody long. Then the next three months, you could probably be secure. At least the next three months, you're more or less secure that. If you say, I'll go for a pint with the boys, you're probably going to do it because you've got the antibodies. I thought it would be liberating. Turns out it's just rubbish. (laughs) But did this episode segue of Dynamite perk you up, Sige? The, the words daddy magic were uttered on it. So <laughs> of daddy magic. You can, I can't wait for Chris Jericho to have fun with the pronunciations. Not least the actual man playing this new character. Daddy magic. It, it feels like there was a little bit in the show for all three of us. Like you say, you've got, I mean, excellent wrestling, especially for both of you. Uh, daddy, daddy magic for you, Sige. A potential Bret Hart tease for you, Hamlet. And that ungrateful bastard Wardlow didn't win his TNT championship. Suck it! Suck it! Uh, Hamlet, we'll get to the Bret Hart thing, but what did you make of the show? Loved it. Loved all of it, man. Um... There were very few down spots on the show. And even when there was a couple of times <coughs> the matches sacked, um, I was in too much admiration of the attempts to get things working or to get characters moving or to get stuff over. A really um, proper, like, this was the week where I, I don't know, maybe it's because I've not been very well and I haven't really watched much wrestling, but... I think on another week at another time, I might have been like, eh, yeah, this was all right. But that would be a spoiled bastard take because there was a lot of like seven to eight out of 10 stuff happening here with the view of eventually building a 10. And I was able to appreciate it. Mm. In glory, Like loads of it on this show. For the second week in a row, they're doing, we always tend to call it table setting stuff. And the thing is, you don't want that. You need that table setting to be different from the pay-per-view, but you don't want it to feel completely transparent and just feel like they're kind of holding your hand through brand new developments. Mm. There was tons of that this week without feeling patronising. I was a big, big fan of some of the, the details work on this show. Even when, like, I don't, I don't think, and this is a bit of a spoiler for the main event, I don't think any of the matches, like, were, were pushing ceilings or anything on this particular show. But all of them were good in their own way and had a mm. ton of little character moments that just made you excited for the stuff to come. My two favorite things about All Elite Wrestling are the feeling of big time major arena wrestling that isn't WWE, where you get seminal moments, a proper big fight occasion atmosphere where you feel like all the build matters, even if the build itself isn't necessarily great. And I also love tiny little details I can be a dork over. And this episode delivered both big time. Let's dive straight into it then. The show opened uh, with a nice. You know, it always opens with it's Wednesday night. You know what that means. But beforehand, Jim Ross dropped a little hey yo, which was a lovely touch. Uh, we've seen them throughout the week, uh, wrestling shows 
giving lovely nods to the late great Scott Hall. And then we dive straight into uh, Adam Cole and Red Dragon versus Hangman Page and Jurassic Express. Uh, world champions taking on potential uh, contenders. Battle of the Briots, what, about a month away, I think it is. Uh, Jungle Boy and Cole start us off. Um, and uh, Jungle Boy takes control, hits a Hurricane Rana. And then in comes uh, the ageless Bobby Fish and Luchasaurus. Um, and well, Luchasaurus just hits everyone with those huge chops of his. Uh, Red Dragon roll out to the floor and kick the leg out of Luchasaurus's leg and manage to isolate him in the corner, frequent tags, that sort of thing. Finally, um, Luchasaurus fires out and gets to the world champion Hangman Page for the tag, who just runs wild. Fish gets hit with a fallaway slam. Uh, Piscado on Cole and O'Reilly. Topi Suicida onto both of them as well for good measure. Pop-up powerbomb on Fish gets a near fall, uh, but Fish... Rolls out of the way of the bookshop. We get Jungle Boy hitting a flip dive, and then Jungle Boy, Page, and Luchasaurus hit simultaneous moonsaults onto all three of their opponents. Uh, and Jungle Boy gets a near fall on Fish off the back of that. But the referee gets distracted, and that allows Cole to kick Jungle Boy and a bit of Red Dragon two on one offense here to, to get a near fall. They isolate Jungle Boy, take us through a break. When they come back, uh, Jungle Boy hits that rebound lariat to get to Luchasaurus who uh, just comes in, just takes them all out, concluding with a choke slam of fish onto O'Reilly. Moonsault double pin, that gets a two count as well. They set up for the Doomsday device, but Red Dragon managed to counter it. And uh, O'Reilly eventually get Luch gets Luchasaurus in a knee bar, and there's that bit with uh, Cole trying to hold off Page, but he overpowers him to manage to break it up. Page and Cole, we finally get that moment of the two of them just face-to-face, forehead to forehead in the ring, and they're just twatting each other as hard as they can. Page hits the dead eye, then everyone just comes in uh, and hits a parade of big moves, basically. Uh, we get a double doomsday device from Jungle Boy for a great two count, uh, but then Red Dragon hit their high-low, and Cole lowers the boom on Jungle Boy to get the victory, which Andy and I sort of predicted on the preview. Did you see it going this way beforehand, Sidjo, and what did you make of the match itself? I probably would have expected um, Luchasaurus to take the pin, mm -hmm. given that Jungle Boy is the one with the long-term potential. I reserve judgment on the wisdom of booking him to do the job, because it might inform a Christian Cage promo in about four or five months' time. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but I did see it obviously going this way. And it is the unironic let it play out promotion, so I can, in fact, reserve judgment on what are potentially questionable developments on the surface. But uh, there was one last week, and it was resound it was resoundingly answered. It's a fantastic development this week, so it's they've earned my complete implicit trust at this point. Um, so yeah, I expected one of the babyface challengers to take the fall to set up um, Cole versus Page at Battle of the Belts. As for the match quality, it was below the very best AEW trios matches. Uh, we know the formula by now. I was kind of anticipating when the beats were going to happen without being overtly thrilled by them. Um, one of the big sort of set-piece spots would have been great, but the camera work was like, unforgivably bad. And the triple moonsault, like, not only did it linger too much on a really sort of laboured setup, but then it just, the camera just stayed there and it missed all three dives. <laughs> like, capture one, capture one, that took the air out of the balloon. Um, but the moments of drama really did sort of intensify by the finish. Cole and Page, their chemistry is just absolutely off the charts in terms of how hard they hit each other, 
how much it feels like that execution is just the work of two masters. This has done an absolutely phenomenal job of reheating coal from the Orange Cassidy debacle. Um, so yeah, it did everything it needed to do. It wasn't quite on the level of the best trios matches. There were individual moments of brilliance. And honestly, like it was just kind of lush to see Hangman Page generally before the cool sequence, just do his sequence. Mm. Those moves of doom, but just this trademark thing where he does the, the sack of, sh- as the great Scott Hall used to call it, and then vaulting over the ropes. He just did his bit and everyone loved it because he's the world champion and everyone loves him. Um, so it probably says more about the match than it should, that I like that bit more than most things about it, but it, I had a fun time watching something that probably could have been a bit better. Yeah, I would say this was more nice than it was good, but there was lots to like wrapped up in that nice. So yeah, the the well, I mean, theoretically, I suppose I was thinking this is a dual build to Battle of the Belts because it quite nicely, you know, they've been fairly fast and loose with uh, tag title contenders anyway. So this potentially lines up a straight tag match for Red Dragon when they can theoretically blame the presence of the Young Bucks for not winning the belt at the pay-per-view. Adam Cole gets to say that, well, gets to feel vindicated in his choice of Red Dragon over the Young Bucks because teaming with these guys has basically put him right back in line for one more shot at Hangman Page. Um, thought Hangman Page in general was tremendous. I echo everything Sidgwick said there about having him wrestling. Second week in a row, um, I just felt more... Um, vindicated in my belief that Hangman Page is a type of world champion that have wrestling as often as possible because it's his presence that makes him feel like a champion more than, more than his absences, um, as, a, as a baby face especially. So they're not always going to be total classics, but the mere visual of him on television leading the line as he does um, is the champion I feel like he should be. He's going to beat Adam Cole again. He's going to have these setbacks along the way, but I'll, I have absolute faith in him retaining the title and doing what's right by the end. Great facials after the fact as well. Like genuine frustration from Page as he has the opposite situation to Cole. He maybe is left this week to question, like not question the Jurassic Express in the sense he's going to turn on them particularly, but question if it was the right choice picking them over the Dark Order when we were shown that little glimpse of possible dissension between those two sides. I don't know where that story is going, but I'm more interested in it this week as a result of this result. So, yeah. Like the match was what it was, but I'm honestly really intrigued by the the sort of the sprawling storyline developments of pretty much all six of them. Mm. Yeah, we go backstage then, uh, and we've got a meeting between the two members of Team Taz, Ricky Starks, and Powerhouse Hobbs and Keith Lee. I did like the fact that they covered off the fact of wait a second, why isn't Keith Lee murdering these two? Uh, but they promised no physicality in this meeting, as it was announced by Tony Schiavone, who reveals that Keith Lee is going to face Max Caster on Rampage. Uh, and Stark says, "You must be Irish, because today's your lucky day." Uh, explain that you don't go on Rampage on Starks' show, and then you know. If you do, what happens, what happened, happens. Um, he said, you decide to do things your way. So we had to go out there and show show him what what it's like being on this. Uh, I did like the powerhouse Hobbs line of, you know all about that spine buster, baby. Uh, and um, Starks reiterates that and says, we're going to stomp you out like a light. Uh, if you go on Rampage this week, the same thing will happen. And Keith Lee says, the same thing. Like when I punched you in the face and you laid on the back like a little bitch. I shall see you gentlemen on Friday. Ta-ta. And he, he departs. <laughs> I love the uh, Keith Lee developing Max Caster storyline throughout this show. I mean, I liked all of this right down to them 
like telling you at the start it was a pre-arranged meeting with certain stipulations about what they couldn't couldn't do to each other appreciate that um but you've given me what i was hoping for because when keith lee said little bitch in a promo i thought how's wilborn going to spin that into shakespearean gold and you did it I will always love the idea that the broadcast is a broadcast and there are pre-arranged segments on it because these things just don't get made up as they go along. The character interactions were fun. The show is a broadcast. There's a sanctity to it. I'm a happy pedant. Uh, let's talk about the other segment with this because I just adored it. So you've got the acclaimed backstage, uh, Max Caster, Anthony Bowens. They're doing their, their thing about... Uh, how are they going to beat Keith Lee? How Caster's going to beat, beat Keith Lee on Rampage? Anthony Bowens calls Keith Lee Cleveland Junior. <laughs> uh, and he goes to do the old uh, acclaimed thing with his fingers when Ricky Stocks takes it in a sort of handshake and goes, my man! And uh, he says, basically, take care of business, beat the crap of them, you know, you know, get the job done on, on Friday. Then in comes... Uh, I keep wanting to call him Isaiah Swerve Scott, Shane Swerve Strickland, um, who uh, gets a great reaction, reminds everyone it's Swerve's house now uh, and says he's going to steal Ricky Stark's spotlight. A nice line from Caster asking, isn't that guy a rapper? Um, fantastic development later on the show, Sige. Yeah. Backstage promo train, but, you know, it didn't go 20 minutes and I like all of the principles involved. Yes. Yeah, it was. it was a bit weird. It was a bit fake, but everybody's charisma carried it over the line. And like I'm, I feel like I'm just begging for this at this point. Were we being shown the acclaimed face mm. as a result of like a broken down relationship with Team Taz? Because it feels like inevitable, undeniable, and yeah, and overdue, quite honestly, at this point. Um, but like surely Team Taz are the perfect guys for them to align with as this one last thing, and then when it goes wrong. You, there, there's your split and there's your divide and there's your first big baby face win for the acclaimed. Speaking of things that are overdue, um, after that segment with with Lee and, and Hobbs and and Starks, we got a brief video of Chris Statlander taking off her makeup. Um, you think we could be losing the alien side of things, Sige? I mean, that was the pretty on the nose symbolism. Um, it's not really bothered me, to be perfectly honest. She hasn't really booped anyone that I can recall in quite some time. Mm. It's long since just become quite a cool aesthetic that sets her apart as opposed to this actual alien who Jim Ross was bemused by in taking me out of the out of the experience of watching Dynamite altogether. So possibly unnecessary. I hope it's a decision because I think she was quite happy just doing it. Um, so it's not really bothered me. Oh, there's an alien in AEW. There isn't. There's just someone who's got like an alien-esque aesthetic who's long since shown like lots of our own personality. Um, look, if it's her idea and it gets her in a prominent position because she's amazing, then that would be great. But I hope that was her idea that's not being thrust upon her. Yeah, it's it's felt like, to use a bit of a Jim Rossism actually, it's felt like Statlander, not that she wasn't pretty good before, but it's felt like she's been elevating a game lately. Like her in-ring, I wouldn't say it's improved exponentially, that's unfair, but she's just like, maybe that like she's taken more opportunities that she's not previously been given or whatever it is, but she's just felt like a massive standout in this division lately. So if this is what she believes is the next step, or at very least, like as Cedric points out there, at very least if it's a collaborative thing and it's not something that's been asked of her, uh, it's a good sign. I want to 
like later on coming shortly, I want to talk about sequencing on the show, but I found it interesting retrospectively that this was sequenced before another segment where somebody else is questioning maybe the frivolities of what it is to be in best friends versus what it is to be an awesome wrestler. Getting two of them in a row might be telling mm. them maybe what's what's happening with them. And that too is kind of an overdue development as well. Yeah, Statlander was conspicuous by her absence when the best friends came out. They were represented by Chuck Taylor and Wheeler Utah here, um, flanked by Cassidy, Trent, and of course, Danhausen to take on Moxley and Danielson. We got Regal coming out, of course, with Moxley and Danielson. He joins commentary. Uh, he reiterates his thanks to Tony Schiavone. He uh, directs them the way of Jim Ross as well. And he says something along the lines of, Man in the mask, you've never helped me. Uh, but then he does ask, um, Pray tell, Man with the mask. Who is this demon waif? He has to have uh, uh, Danhausen explain to him, uh, which popped me even more when I saw on this morning on Twitter someone saying, "Did William Regal just call Danhausen a demon wank?" Which is <laughs> a dread to Urban Dictionary what earth a demon wank is. But regardless, uh, Moxley and Danielson versus the best friends came next. Uh, Moxley and Danielson attack right the bell, uh, beat the crap out of Wheeler Utah. He uh, finally gets some space and tags in Chuck who uh, planches Moxley and puts Danielson in a single leg crab, but Danielson manages to get out and tags Moxley. He uh, takes out Chuck to uh, allow Regal's gaggle of bastards to take control as we head to a break. When we come back, Newton gets a bit of a hot tag, but gets quickly cut off uh, by a brutal lariat from Moxley. Uh, Utah hits him with a German suplex bridge for two, but Danielson runs interference or, or distracts him. That allows Moxley to hit a jumping cutter and a sort of heart attack for a two count. Moxley DDTs Chuck on the floor and Danielson hits yes kicks in the ring. Utah fires up, uh, but Danielson hits him with a Saito suplex, does it again, uh, and then bridges on one for a, a nice near fall, uh, and then just kicks Utah's head in, followed by bringing in Moxley, who, as if things weren't bad enough for Wheeler Utah, gets bulldog choked into submission. Post-match, it's the usual, you know, losing team leaves, but Utah pauses, heads back into the ring and offers a handshake to William Regal, who's celebrating with his charges. Um, but Regal doesn't do things that way. So instead, he slaps the taste out of Wheeler Uta's mouth, who squares up to William Regal. And there's a nice shot where you've got Uta in, in Regal's face and then sort of over Regal's shoulder. Uh, Danielson's there like, go on, see what happens. See what happens if you take a swing here. Um, and I think... That was sort of a tacit endorsement of Wheeler Utah, the slap in the face, Sid. What did you make of it and uh, your thoughts on the match too? All of this was fantastic. I think the match needed to go as long as it did, even if the experience of the match itself wasn't this great thing. Like Danielson and Mox together are still great. They're still obviously establishing their chemistry. I don't think they've begun to like scratch the surface of what they can do as a team together. Um but at the same time, knowing what was going to come later, it's probably not a good idea to completely jabronify best friends. Otherwise, Wheeler Uta's decision is incredibly easy. Like, oh, well, I'm, if I'm getting shredded in two minutes, mm. then I don't have to have the conflict. There's no emotional resonance there, if there's any at all, but theoretically. Um, so I think it works on that basis. Um, but the post-match angle is absolutely fantastic. This has been building since well before Revolution, when Danielson first said to Marx, there is too much frivolity in this company. There are too many geeks. There are too many squandered talents associating with nerds who don't take any of this seriously enough like us. And this is all getting paid off beautifully and nicely. Um, and Wheeler Utah 
I just giving his best possibly individual AEW performance, at least in terms of the character, the personality, the motivation. Like his in-ring work has been excellent, of course, but the fire-up spot, how well he manipulated that crowd into actually cheering his name as if, oh, he's someone, he's somebody, or he's got the potential to be a somebody. It was all so perfectly arranged um, that I couldn't help just being complete admiration of the night that they run this angle is the night that Wheeler Utah finally gets to Wheeler Utah chant in the same ring as Mox and Danielson, no less. So it must have been an absolutely unqualified success on that basis, even if at certain points I thought the match was dragging. I was just, before even the post-match angle took place, I was just marvelling at what a fantastic job this was of getting Wheelie over in defeat. I didn't think, because I was so impressed with how the match was structured around getting Wheelie over, that the post-match, like, I don't want to say it was over again. It was like icing on the cake, really, because it was all great. But I, like, I was just, wow, I'm getting even more than I thought here. I would have imagined that this, like, wheelie uh, questioning where he should be or the slap, all of it, I was thinking, oh, this is maybe going to be in one or two weeks' time because the match has told, it like, such an effective story. Such a fantastic way of using this team. A lot went on here in the subtext of the match. Um, and it was perhaps so much going on in the subtext that I'd... Like I, I maybe echo in Cedric's point here that maybe you didn't really see much going on in the match as a result. The heart attack itself was a touch on the clunky side, and Moxley and Danielson are too good as practitioners for that to be by accident. You know, um, I think we we were seeing the stories simultaneously of Moxley and Danielson becoming a great tag team, and Wheeler Yuta becoming a breakout star. Mm. Like. Like one was holding the other story's hand, if you know what I mean. So you were watching two very, very strong singles performances of Moxley and Danielson at various points telling Wheelie to stop it. Just absolutely stop it. Stop this comeback nonsense. Stop thinking that you're hard on us because we'll bat you. And they did. But because Wheelie was making those comebacks and forcing them to say stop it time after time after time, he was generating that response and he was getting over as a result. And I just thought it was it's quite a hard job, I think, to try and tell those two separate stories. And what on the surface feels quite disparate, you then bring back together in quite nice fashion with the post-match. And you see that Moxley, Moxley and Danielson feel more of an alliance when they're over either of William Regal's shoulders. And I don't think that's an accident as well, that kind of Moxley still feels like the angel of Danielson's devil. Danielson was the one in shot, smirking and wanting to see where this, like Danielson's got more of a sort of a kink for the cruelty of all this. And I think John Moxley does. John Moxley is just bang game at being a hard lads club. So I like that they kind of it's not a betrayal of their individual characters while you're bringing folk together. But if you wheel a Utah, yeah, why would you not want more of this versus what's looking back at you at the ramp? You know, like, I know, I know we're not all huge Danhausen guys on this podcast, but the way he was looking as Danhausen-y as possible is the only way I can think to describe him. This meek, strange creature on the ramp going... Come on, Willie While just these iconically dangerous hard guys in the ring that have openly admitted they want your service long term are stood right there. Like, who would make the, the other choice? Mm. Uh, mixed emotions about what came next because it was a very brief sort of wrap up of like, right, well, that's the reason why we got rid of Tully Blanchard. FTR are backstage and they effectively explain. They got rid of Tully because he lost focus once they lost the uh, once they lost the the titles. 
Um, anyway, in come the young bucks again, called it. Me and Andy said, if anyone's going to dress like a bell end for St. Paddy's Day Slam, it's going to be one of the young bucks. It was Nick. Uh, <laughs> they come in and have the temerity whilst dressed like that to mock uh, FTR saying, well, if you should be firing anyone. You should be firing uh, your, your tailor or your barber because look at the state of you, basically. Uh, it doesn't matter who you could hire, Michael Hamflitch. You could hire the best there is, the best manager in the world. And still, unfortunately, you'd be the second best tag team in AEW. Yeah, did you? Oh, there's pink lighting as well in the background. Did you catch this Bret Hart tease? <laughs> did I catch it? Yeah. Uh, I think it could have dropped through my fingers, bounced back up and I'd have caught it second time. It was that clear. <laughs> Showing me the second iteration of the AEW tag team dream match, which this time will take place in front of a crowd, while telling me that Bret Hart is coming, is some goddamn booking flex on AEW's part. Not least because it was a backstage segment that looked like nothing on the surface before it potentially offered up absolutely everything. What a wonderful economic piece of potentially incredible business this was, dressed as a kind of backstage non-sequitur. Quite the remarkable few seconds of AEW television, this. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that literally has you dreaming like a complete mark. Like a complete and utter mark. And, you know, and that words back in the, uh, the discourse because, you know, William Regal hates it. I, I hate it too, but sometimes this is how you, you feel. Like, you feel like a complete punter, a mark for fantasy book and everything. So my, immediately, my immediate thought here was, what if the Young Bucks, knowing what we know about how Bret Hart's career ended, tease hitting him with a super kick? Yeah. In Las Vegas. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the things they could bloody do. Oh, my days. <laughs> I'll tweet that one, I reckon. I've got, I've got a good reaction. What about the mega fans? Well, forgive me. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we go any further, though, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses. They can be big life worries or just, you know, little things like your favorite wrestler not being used properly. The thing is, when we keep them bottled up, it really can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It is really helpful too for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy basically empowers you to be the best version of yourself. So why not give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and best of all, suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatculture today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WhatCulture. Right, then we got to the Jericho Appreciation Society commencement. Another different word. Parlay, but all the others, I can't remember any of the meetings, all the other Town hall. Town hall, thank you. Uh, yes, we got the commencement. Um, first of all, on the night where I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about gear later on. Quick word on what Matt was wearing here, Hamlet. Well, amazing on its own terms. White leather jacket, white trousers, uh, bright red shoes. But even better when the, the rest of this plays out and he's the one, if you look at them physically, he's the one positioned to be the mini-me to Chris Jericho this time in the exact same way Sammy Guevara was. And how, how would, uh, we'll just call him Matt for the time being, more, mm-hmm. more to come. How would Matt sort of, knowing what we know of him and being big fans going all the way back to the ever <laughs> in the darkest days of NXT, how would Matt try and reflect that he's a lot like Chris Jericho in a lot of ways? He would he can just dress like him. <laughs> he would <laughs> Jericho in his leather jacket, his trousers and his, like, his matching trainers. And you just think, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm just, I'm just like you, Chris. So like as daft and as brilliant as he looked, it was actually with a purpose too. And again, if you pull out and reveal you will see a sort of a certain similarity between Daniel Garcia and Jeff. And obviously, I mean, JK has been running his own race since year dot, I think. So, uh, so yeah, it, it means he's cutting everyone off at the pass because this is this new heel group that everyone sings the entrance theme for when they come out. Well, Matt Lee starts off by saying, enjoy that, enjoy singing Judas. Well, the only reason you get to sing that is because Chris Jericho made it possible. And they say, uh, Jeff is on the mic as well. I called this on the preview as well. I said, give these two a live microphone as well as Chris Jericho. Uh, They say, Jericho is a better man than me. And they talk about how Jericho should be praised and idolized uh, both for his contributions to wrestling and as a human being. And Jericho on top form says, the earth has been around for 4.5 billion years. And yet you are living at the same time as Chris Jericho. He says if there was no Chris Jericho, there'd be no AEW. He runs through the history of AEW and how he's completely connected with it. Uh, but instead of praising Jericho, people complain. They insult me on social media, he says. Um, you know, that he's the greatest performer in history, but the fans don't appreciate him. And neither did the inner circle. Each and every one of them he runs through uh, didn't appreciate them. But these men stood in the ring with me. They do. And that is why they are the Jericho Appreciation Society. They just don't relate either to the rest of the AW roster because the rest of the AW roster, ugh, they're just pro wrestlers. Jericho isn't that. Yeah, he is a sports entertainer and this fires up Daniel Garcia and he says wait 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 a second I need to get something off my chest he says if you're a sports entertainer then I guess I am too (laughs) and Jericho talks Daniel Garcia up I will say obviously love this entire segment when Chris Jericho referenced the 6th of January my arse dropped out a little bit for a split second (laughs) when he followed it with 2019 I thought oh okay right I've got where you're going here especially when it comes to contributions as well and the Jericho lot. Anyway, um, he talks about the horrific uh, car accident that obviously Garcia suffered and the broken broken bones, et cetera, that he he donated money towards to help his recovery. Uh, and then he turns to 2.0, uh, who says, he says, it's got bad names from bad creative. Um, he talks about, you know, he was the reason they have a job in AEW. He got a call from his mate, Kevin, 
who uh, got him to, to have a look at them and get him on talk is Jericho. And uh, they won him over. And they're going to be using their real names from now on, which is <laughs> Daddy Magic Matt Minard and Cool Hand Ange Angelo Parker. <laughs> Uh, then he turns to uh, Hager, who says he's, you know, he's always looked after him for, what, I think 2010, I think he said. Saved his life in Dubai. He's the hand of the king. Uh, and Jake keeps it short and sweet. Uh, he says, uh, we are the JAS and we beat up pro wrestlers. And Jericho said, you know, March 16th, 2022. Remember that. That is the era of the sports entertainer in AEW. Sensational stuff, this siege. Oh, my God. The beauty of the Le Champion era, right, was that literally every day or on social or every week on Dynamite, he did something to pop your tits off. This is the ne- this is when the next bit of that. He's going to do something every single week. That's going to be amazing. This feels like an actual reinvention. How does he do it? Like, you thought, oh, Le Champion, that's the best one yet. Like, it was always, he knew how to market his reinventions better than he did reinvent himself. He did. He's done loads of personas and all the rest of it, but he's stuck in some of them for way longer than he's ever readily admitted. How has he done another mint one? I do not get it. The guy is <laughs> a genius and we should appreciate him. This is fantastic. Like already, this is so good. Interloper gimmicks are incredible. They only work in certain promotions that have got a certain style or a certain ethos that is held in reverence. So that when someone comes in to disgrace it, they are instantly considered the heels by the, the hardcore, ardent, ultra fans. Jerry Lawler and ECW, absolutely tremendous. Like, I hate Jerry Lawler as a human being, but when he says a line as good as, there ain't nothing in it, but sh-, it's just like, that's just, that's just absolutely <laughs> incredible. Matt Cardona, more recently in GCW, was great. I once wrote an article that Baron Corbin, should he ever get released, should be the first name that AEW should get off that list, irrespective of how many more talented people are on there, because Baron Corbin would be sensational. Can you imagine? We've got a new signing, and it's whatever his real name is, Baron Corbin. And he comes out, he's like rolling his eyes, he's can't be asked to be there. And it's like, oh, I just don't want to be here. It's just not the big time, is it? Like, it would have been incredible. But they're doing this specific type of act, this specific strain of heat in AEW. But the one thing that the AEW fans hate most, and that's sports entertainment. And Chris Jericho is absolutely fantastic at this. So good, in fact, that I'm thinking all along, GFY was meant to be terrible on purpose, right? Meant to be terrible on purpose because he wants to make people resent him so that he can fictionalize that resentment in the guise of this new character. The influencer, we're thinking there's going to be something related to this influencer thing. What is it? All right, okay. Well, what it is, is it takes the one kind of curious bit about last week's angle. Why is he in it? And then they give you the best explanation possible. And not only that, they give you a very early, very perceptible hint that it's he's going to be a wrestler at the end of this. Daniel Garcia is going to be the babyface wrestler who takes down the dickhead sports entertainer. They do the two things when I thought that was one thing that I didn't like about last week's segment. And they do two things to correct it. One actually happened. One, because it actually happened, you can believe that Daniel Garcia holds Chris Jericho in his death. And at the same time, through that one line of 
it was just a little tacit. We know that you know he's the wrestler. He's going to be the wrestler. We are going to give you a hint that he's the wrestler and not the sports entertainer at the end of all this. But enjoy the idea of Daniel Garcia under the influence of Chris Jericho doing some Fargo struts, like wearing some ridiculous gear, <laughs> doing some terrible on-purpose catchphrase. Just the idea of Jericho and 2.0 interacting. is good. This is all absolutely incredible. Yeah, just joy was overflowing for this from the first moment to the last and for like so many different reasons as well. Um, Jericho at the beginning of his, of his bit was speaking and like, there's a real freedom to this as well. Speaking like a man that, well, I felt at least that knew he was in an inferior sequel, like to the inner circle until by the end of this promo, they're not in an inferior sequel. They're in Ghostbusters 2, the best sequel ever. They're actually in something that feels completely fitting and in keeping as an extension and not an improvement, but a way to move things forward for Chris Jericho and move things forward for a new stable. And indeed, the remains of the inner circle in terms of Proud and Powerful and Eddie Kingston. First feud is already built, much like the formation of the inner circle. You need rivals right out the gate to make the stable matter and to make them feel like an important part of the show. And you've got them with these. Um, Not only that, as was the case with the inner circle at the time, is that you've got the, the legacy rivals happening talk about that all the time when it's relevant sequencing in AEW. You've just been shown the most pro wrestlers of all the pro wrestlers in AEW. A stable, a Bergenin stable exists predominantly to bring the wrestling back into all elite wrestling where these men perceive it has been taken away. And then in the very next segment, featuring one of the wrestlers that was initially name dropped, you've got a bunch of sports entertainers. I, like, I want to as well linger on that sports entertainer thing. A lot of companies have tried this. This sports entertainer dig at WWE. It Mike Bennett, didn't he? Yeah, it's it's otherwise quite dated. And it like Vince Russo did sports entertainment extreme in TNA in 2003. That's how long. Wait that... a second, what does that spell? Well, sex! Oh, shit. <laughs> you know what, you know what dude used for sex? The cacks. Um, like the the idea that sports entertainment is at this point a stick to beat WWE with is really, really laboured. And yet, Chris Jericho's found a way to have fun with it. They are not doing this in this in that serious, again, very dated, very laboured, sports entertainment where they're just having loads and loads of fun with it. And the tell, of course, is the renaming of Matt Lee and Jeff Parker. Like, Danny Magic and Cool Hand Ange. And Chris Jericho's delivery of this, by the way, like, you were given just a split second to see where he was going. And then you were still wrong-footed by the punchline. Like the inspired, incredible, creative delivery of a guy that is still brilliant at this and was just floundering for a while. And like, you know, we always pat each other on the back on this, but I think it was Sidgwick that made the point to say, look, Chris Jericho probably gets a bit of a raw deal because often when you, you're swimming in the sludge of uh, a, a bad Chris Jericho period, you forget that there's always nectar around the corner. And we have arrived yet again at the nectar because this is what you almost have to survive the bad Chris Jericho times for because there were some for a while. And I would say like in terms of the, when Cedric made the point about GFY and maybe other little things that he was peppering into preppers for this, it was about a month ago, wasn't it? In the face to face with Eddie Kingston where he, where they kind of devised an entire promo around don't do what Donnie WWE does in terms of Jericho versus Kingston. It feels like Christmas was this, 
turning point where Jericho was like, right, I hear you. I hear all of this. What can we do that not only makes this better, but vindicates how all of you have felt? Yeah, words hurt. Like how all of you have felt over this time, and I'm going to now get to use it and ram it down your throats. This is such an inspired development that will get three people more over than they were before. So it'll succeed in the exact same way. The Well, will it succeed in the exact same way the Inner Circle done? Because very proud and powerful didn't. But like on paper, it will exist to do exactly what the Inner Circle did. It gets to take the piss out of WWE in one of the shrewdest ways they ever have done. This is way more fun than some of the more on-the-nose digs they've taken at WWE. You've lifted the 2.0 naming away from Matt and Jeff completely now, which is ideal. And you've done it in a way where you've made a direct comparison to the show. You're ripping the piss out of NXT 2.0 by taking away 2.0 from Matt and Jeff. It's it's absolutely sublime, this whole thing, this whole presentation. Um, love it. Cannot wait for the cannot wait for the first feud, cannot wait for the follow-up feud because you're setting up about like what what said you these are your words was like night one in the inner circles formation, like a big bang of story, like storytelling. Narrative big bang. Narrative big bang. It happened again here, but with the AW mid-card instead of the main event. And I think that mid-card needed it more than the main event, which is only makes this stable more inspired. Mm. One more thing before we move on. One more thing. I think the timing is fortunate more than it was really like sort of well thought out and overlapping. But as soon as Cody was like, right, I'm out. Everyone was like, yeah, Jared goes next. Massive Carney. He'll go to the Fed at some point. So this works on that basis so, so well as well. Uh, we've got a great, great vignette from Serena Deeb talking about Ikari Shida, uh, saying she's in Shida's head and that she's going to end Shida's career. And I was talking to Andy about this in the office and said, can't believe I'm actually willing them to not have like a, oh, a hero returns from a horrific, you know, unwarranted injury and, you know, gets vengeance. I was just like, what if she just injures her again? <laughs> just like, I don't want Serena Deeb never to lose because I love her. She's fantastic. Uh, anyway, and then we got the TNT Championship match. Uh, Wardlow challenging Scorpio Sky. There is but one way I will allow someone to have two TNT Championship belts. And that's if the interim championship is wrapped around the waist of Dan Bloody Lambert. People were tweeting me this morning going, uh, are you all right with this? He's got two belts. I was like, uh-uh. He's got one belt that he's walking down to the ring and presenting to the fans. Dan Lambert's just got his own belt, mate. That's, I've no problem with that. Um, so the match starts. Uh, all of American top team are, of course, are, are around ringside. And you can sort of see potentially where this could go. Uh, Sky hits Wardlow with some body shots. Bad idea. He just gets pissed off, basically. So Wardlow comes back, shoulders to the gut, and slams Sky down. He rolls out to the floor. Uh, there's a bit where he goes after uh, Scorpio Sky on the floor and gets confronted by Paige Van Zandt and literally pops his tits at her, at which her husband goes, don't do that to my wife. But uh, Vanderbilt, I think, is his, na- uh, his name. He gets it, He gets in front of her, uh, of them, and all this allows uh, Wardlow to become distracted and Sky can hit a basement dropkick to take control as we go to a break. When we come back, Sky's grabbing Wardlow by the face and taunting him in the corner, uh, and Wardlow immediately gr- comes back, grabs at his throat, takes him down overhead, belly-to-belly suplexes. Uh, he gets him up for a powerbomb. Sky manages to escape, uh, but Wardlow hits him with a sort of, I can't remember if it was a spine muster or one-handed choke slam. Regardless, he slams him down. 
Scorpio Sky is flat on the mat, and we all know what's coming then. Uh, Wardlow calls for the bow. Powerbomb Symphony. One, two, three, four. Uh, or oh, as he goes for the fourth, I should say. That was when Dan Lambert realises, uh-oh, it could be all over here. So he jumps up on the apron to distract Wardlow. That allows, allows Sky to roll out to the floor. And then here comes Sean Spears. The chairman comes down the ramp carrying a couple of chairs with him. Uh, and all this is, is you know, you sort of can see that, oh, this is, this is a referee distraction. But Wardlow doesn't care. He offers Scorpio Sky down to the ring. But the referee is, is, is Scorpio Sky, sorry, Sean Spears. Offers Sean Spears down to the ring. Uh, and he turns around and, 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 and uh, the referee is, is gesticulating to, uh, to, to Sean Spears to, to get out. He shouldn't be involved in this. And then... The hero returns. MJF out of nowhere slams Wardlow into the ring post. Uh, and Wardlow is completely disoriented, just only has the wherewithal to climb back into the ring, at which point Scorpio Sky rolls him up. One, two, three. You failed, Wardlow. You've failed. You've let everyone down, especially your family, because guess what? You're an ungrateful bastard. Anyway, post-match, everyone gets in to beat up Wardlow, but Wardlow is a beautiful, hard bastard, and he fights everyone off, and MJF, who's got in there to just sort of get involved and maybe stick a few in the ribs and just enjoy the carnage, is trapped in the ring with Wardlow. Uh, Wardlow gets him in position to hit him with a powerbomb, but thankfully, Sean Spears makes the save, cracks a chair off Wardlow's back. Uh, Vanderford gets in, puts him in a sleeper. Uh, no friends, Wardlow, to make the save. CM Punk just sat backstage, feet up going, oh, sucks that, buddy. Now, presumably he wasn't there. Obviously, we did see him on this show. Um, and that means that Spears can hit Wardlow over the head. Thankfully, Wardlow got his hands up. He's fine, everyone. Don't worry. Don't do straight chair shots to the head. It's dumb. Uh, MJF just pays off Lambert for the assist, gives him a, an envelope full of money, basically. And then MJF hits Wardlow with the beautiful diamond ring to close this segment, Hamlet. I mean, I love the segment far more than I even liked the match, in truth. Um, I was watching... Uh, well, I was in America. I flew home to do this podcast. I was watching on TBS last night and uh, the picture in picture gobbled up a lot of this match. And what it didn't was, I don't know, like one of the only points in the night where I thought a pretty amazing crowd fell a little bit flat. So I just don't know if it was one of them occasions that maybe felt a little bit overwhelmed by the, by what everybody knew had to come. It doesn't like AEW isn't really a transitional champions company yet. So whilst you kind of still wait, something has to happen for the first time once. So Wardlow just flattening Scorpio Sky and then, and then kind of subverting your expectations wasn't an impossibility. It, like, it never felt probable from the moment the bell rang and that just the two of them didn't really do enough in the match to, to draw you in in that way. So instead, what you were waiting for was the interference. And that like a little bit of a WWE vibe hangs over the match as a result. When you're waiting for the run-in or you're waiting for the bit, it kind of it does take away from the match, and I think they they lost that almost completely, and I think they lost the crowd as a result. I did, however, really enjoy the presentation of the um, the turn. It was it was unspectacular, but this has happened with MJF before at like opening chapter points of some of his stories. Indeed, Wardlow's debut, if you remember, um, like there was it was oddly undramatic that. And like his debut was MJ, not when he was on the helicopter on the roof. I mean, when he was MJ. <laughs> yes. Um, and yet, obviously, w w here we are now with those two. So I don't fear for it. But it was almost like 
Well, this is what MJF does. He used money once upon a time to buy muscle in Wardlow, and he's used money to buy the butcher and the blade once before, and now he's using money to pay off American top team for the night. Um, so it was, yeah, it, it, like I like how it played out. But again, like what I said at the start of the podcast, really, if I'm not so effusive with praising this, it was more because I appreciated some of the details. AW tries whenever it can to present everything through the prism of reality. And in the last two years, in order to make money, Wardlow's had to sacrifice making friends. And Tony Schiavone made that explicitly clear on commentary. Mm. The punk thing was interesting. And again, I, I was left to wonder, well, is he in the building? And that question will probably be answered long term. I have a lot of faith in AEW to answer that question. Um, but I like Wardlow having no friends wasn't really something I considered last week when he was out there putting his arms out and being like, hey, guys, because we've always been Wardlow's friend. And then all of a sudden you're reminded, well, why were the wrestlers that have worked with him and been battered by him? like at the behest of MJF. So mm. I'd, like that was something that was I hadn't really considered until it was made explicit through Tony Schiavone and then obviously the attack that followed. So I really love that detail. I love the things that are to come in MJF and Wardlow. But I, this was almost, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not complaining that it was unspectacular, but it was unspectacular. It's, it was just basically good news, bad news for me. The good news is that the showdown between MGF and Wardlow, or the tease of it, really got over. Mm. This program will be hot. They'll have a great story. Everything MGF does touches the gold in these sprawling sagas. And the bad news is that I don't think this audience um, treated Scorpio Sky as a credible champion. It didn't feel like a title fight. It did feel like the interference was looming. As, as soon as you started doing the power bombs, you didn't think, oh, this is it. You thought, oh, well, where's the pinnacle? But even before that, it just felt like Scorpio Sky isn't it as a TNT title challenger. And I think the booking has got a, a, a large part mm. um, to do with that. The guy was on dark and had a justifiable claim. And it's not like the heel has a justification for his own wrongdoings. It's that the wrestler has a really good record and it's not being rewarded for whatever reason. Um, but I just don't think he's there and I don't think he's remotely helped by the standard of the roster. Like with the greatest film in the world, like I think Scorpio Sky is great. I think Scorpio Sky functions as a tag team wrestler brilliantly. Um, I do think there are several names that virtually every fan probably would have had a mind to be the guy doing weekly matches as TNT champion. Um, so yeah, I'll, I hope it goes better for him, but this is not a good omen. Mm, I think that's a fair assessment. I suppose overall with the segment, you could just say, whoops. Uh, is that going to show yeah. Happy belated birthday, Max. Uh, Jade and Mark Sterling are backstage. Jade Cargill, of course, soon to be 30, you know. Uh, they're intrigued to know who's next, but Jade says basically giving another match is more like charity than opportunity. And then we get the first AW, <laughs> AW match for... The Hardy boy, the Hardys, uh, who are taking on Private Party. Of course, AW announced this after we did the AW Dynamite preview podcast, but we sort of alluded to that was the direction we felt that they were going in. Um, and this was amazing to be saying this after so many years. In large parts, your archetypal Hardy Boys match in terms of what the offense they got in uh, early on, uh, he rolled back the years. Double teams from the Hardys on on Isaiah Cassidy and Mark Quinn. Um, they uh, isolate Mark Quinn in fact with the uh, regular tags, but then uh, Matt gets taken down and uh, Private Party mock 
the Hardys hitting the old leg drop, standing shooter star press combo thing. That gets a near fall and Matt gets sent outside to take us to a break. When we come back, uh, Quen uses this distraction to, to hit this great tope onto Matt, uh, tope con giro onto Matt and uh, Private Party hit the double team. But then Matt finally escapes and gets over to Jeff for a red hot tag. Uh, he runs wild. On Isaiah Cassidy, uh, does some leg drops, does that one where he leg drops the legs and pins them, sort of, but that only gets a two count. Sets up the Swanton Bomb, but Mark Quen pulls him down. Matt Hardy hits a side effect on Quen, and Jeff hits a top rope splash on Cassidy. That gets a near fall. Uh, Cassidy counters the twist of fate, but then they go for the silly string. Matt stops that. And then uh, eventually they both hit twists of fate. Jeff Hardy nails the Swanton Bomb. One, two, three. Post-match, Andrade El Idolo and the rest of the AFO come out to uh, to beat him down. But who should make the save? But Sting and Darby Allen repaying the favour. Sid, your thoughts on all this? Well, I'm not a huge Hardy Boys guy. Never really have been. Um, all the respect for their personal and professional accomplishments and, you know, various renaissances. But I'm just not a Hardy Boys guy. This was because the crowd are so goddamn into the Hardy Boys. It feels like it's an oxymoron, this. This is a respectable and electrifying match. And I think for the role they're playing, that is absolutely more than enough. Like, the heat counted for so much here. It was off the charts. They were in love with Jeff Hardy. They, again, respectable is the word, because I don't think it was killer it wasn't like incredibly like fluid. It wasn't disjointed. Like structurally, it was a really good bit of business, but it wasn't this like electrifying. Well, it was electrifying because of the atmosphere, but it wasn't this exhilarating match that you could get totally lost in. You could see that one team was younger than the other, that they were working around and that they were working towards getting the baby faces over. The way I would describe it, it's, it's pitched somewhere between the Hardy Boys of... 2017 in WWE between like uh, the rock and rolls now on the indie scene. That's no detriment to the rock and rolls on the indie scene. What they're doing is just unbelievable for their age, but that doesn't work on TV. It absolutely doesn't work on TV, but it's pitched somewhere between the middle of that. And I think that's just about enough for this to work. Uh, Time's a flat circle, man. I love how um, there'll be some, you know, good and bad, but especially the bad ones. Some of the bad faith critics of AEW or the more vocal ones that complain about a particular style that they perceive to just like influence AEW's matches to a toxic degree. I love the idea that of all the like wrestlers or the acts or the teams that they could be like, yeah, that's what private party needed was to just get two guys in there that could slow it down with them a little bit. It's the Hardys, one of the acts that once upon a time would have enraged these types of older heads. They'd be like, you're doing too much, Jeff, slow it down. I love that the Hardys have become them, slow it down, guys, because that's how much wrestling itself has sped up. Ironically, it's been massively to private parties' benefit here because Mm. this was slowed down. This was a Hardy Boys, you know, bump, get the heat, make the hot tag, big finish, almost WWE-style tag match. But Private Party were probably in need of a few more of these because if you pepper Private Party spots into a match like that, you see what they're great at instead of occasionally seeing what they still can't do. All too often, Private Party are advertising their flaws rather than like what they're amazing at and what you, from short glimpses before AEW launched, like I remember me and Sidgwick kind of falling in love with Private Party a little bit and then feeling a bit disappointed at seeing the wires a little bit. This match was perfect in that regard. 
um, Hardys immediately feel like they'll satisfy that Christian Cage player coach brief quite nicely. On And I'm not a Hardy Boys guy either, basically. I'm acting on evidence of what I saw here. Um, I still think, I don't know, it's going to take a lot. Right, Andrade was awesome. Revolution weekend. Um, the, that Rampage three-way was great. The Revolution multi-man was a total blast. Outside of that, I'm still yet to be sold on much of this feeling like particularly vital. Like that, that Revolution match was an unqualified success and a chaotic one at that. But you cannot do that every time. And I'd like, I don't think this feud's got much. I still don't think this feud's got much meat on the bone. So when you see them all doing the face off, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like, and they've built the invisible wall, no less. I'm not wailing for them to come on, Jeff, go and get the butcher. You know, like that's not a dig at any of the individual talents, but this isn't no. like an elite in a circle thing where I'm just screaming for them to jump at each other. So I, like, fair enough, do one more of this, but like get people moved on to other things after that. Uh, we get a Red Velvet backstage promo to set up her match with uh, God bless you, God bless me, God bless you, uh, on uh, Rampage this week. And then it was time for the main event. Britt Baker defending the AW Women's World Championship inside a steel cage against Thunder Rosa, who got played out. Uh, she had great uh, face uh, makeup on and uh, she had an all-female mariachi band player out there. Uh, Britt Baker as well coming out in, in Scott Hall themed gear was a lovely touch as well. Uh, we dive straight into it. Uh, Baker tries to scale the cage, even though you can't win by escaping the cage in AEW, but she didn't want to be in there with Thunder Rosa. That's what the story was being told there. Um, and yeah, Rosa, it shows why very quickly. Uh, Lariat to Britt Baker drives her into the cage, drags her face across it and busts her open early on. Uh, they fight on the floor. That way Baker gains a bit of control and Rosa gets uh, gets subduced as well as she goes to the break. When we are in break, Baker getting chairs, chucking him into the ring. Rosa dodges a chair shot and hits clothesline and gives Baker a taste of her own medicine with a chair. Um, looks nice, Rosa, with the blood and the face paint and all that. Rosa hits a stunner and a corner clothesline and the running low drop kick gets a near fall. Uh, but then Baker nails was it Paul Turner? I think his name is the, uh, yeah. the the referee. He eats a brutal looking super kick and then gets knocked out of the ring. That allows Rosa to hit her fire thunder driver, but there's no referee that uh, she gets the visual pin. But uh, as she props the chair on Baker and goes up top, Breaker stops her, gets some chair shots in, and hits a avalanche air raid crash onto the chairs, brutal looking spot, a spot that could finish any match, but the delay in getting a replacement referee, who was Aubrey Edwards coming out, that allows uh, Thunder Rosa to sufficiently recover to just kick out of the last second uh, for a great near fall. And uh, there's a nice, sort of, I'm not sure if it's deliberate or incidental callback to their uh, lights out matches. We see Brick Baker's face covered in blood like it was a year ago. Um, Baker sets up this mad chair structure. Normally, it's like six chairs with the, the seats put out. So it looks horrible, but it's a nice flat surface, potentially hard surface, but flat surface to fall onto. She did that. Then she like put a few extra chairs on there just so there was more edges and stuff to fall onto. Anyway, the uh, the time it's taken her to, to set that up, um, 
means that uh, they are fighting on the top rope. Uh, Breaker gets sent into the cage and pushed off the uh, top turnbuckle and falls into this big pile of chairs. Rosa covers it for a two count. Um, Baker fires up, though, hits a super kick, goes under the ring and brings out thumbtacks, which JR questioned why they were needed at a wrestling show. And it was quickly corrected that, yeah, probably Britt Baker put them there because of the history between these two. She empties them into the ring. Rosa counters a neck breaker, but then Baker back body, drop, back body drops Rosa onto the tacks for a near fall. She goes into her boot, I think it was, pulls out the glove, flips off the camera and goes for the locked jaw. But Rosa bites Baker's hand to stop that. So Baker switches over to go to the other hand, but her hand's not got a glove on and that gets slammed into the uh, into the tacks. Rosa power bombs Baker, pulls, fires her, pulls her in, power bombs her onto the tacks. Uh, and then Fire Thunder drivers her to get the what, very painful one, two, three from Audrey Edwards onto the tax. You've seen the uh, images on social media, no doubt. But yes, Fire Thunder driver from Rosa, one, two, three. Thunder Rosa is the new AEW Women's World Champion. There's tears, there's confetti coming down. Uh, as the cage was lifted, I saw on social media, she went and celebrated with the crowd. A hometown victory, Michael Hamplett. Yeah, this was great enough by the end. Great enough because um, it had to be great. It was the, you know, AEW had made the like somewhat divisive or controversial choice to almost like sacrifice the first match at the pay-per-view to be able to deliver this. They were proven right. You know, the the, yeah. the the heat for this was through the roof. This was absolutely the right call to save this to San Antonio. Britt Baker doesn't get booed like that anywhere and yet there was absolutely only one winner here for this crowd. So, like, they were they were vindicated, AEW was vindicated in that decision to delay this at the pay-per-view for something much bigger here. Um, the match had, obviously, enormous expectations, and whilst I don't think it lived up to those set by the first match, it lived up to different ones of just needing to be a very evocative title switch, and I think that's what people will remember. I think people will remember... Um, look, and I'm going to have a little whinge here in the middle so that I can get back to praising this. But I don't think people are going to remember a lot of the weapon stuff here. There, there's too much of it. Like the chair spot was absolutely amazing and could have been a finish in this. But we've had tacks at the pay-per-view. We've had kind of generic chair and weapon stuff loads all the time. And it was falling flat until you see character-based weapon stuff. So the Lockjaw stuff was absolutely gripping. Just fantastic memorable in-character moments regardless of the weapons that were surrounding them because otherwise in terms of your big weapons moment that Britt Baker chair bump was the finish you know so they had to have they had to have something else that wasn't terribly weapons driven for the ending which is what we got um but by the end and I like I put this I, I tweeted this at the time it felt like they were suddenly like racing to get out of there and the time constraints were maybe working against them I don't know if they had to cut something but I just loved that it got to the point, Britt Baker's chair shot in particular on the outside just felt real. It didn't felt like Thunder Rosa was bracing herself for it or that Britt was chasing the big noise or the big gasp from the crowd. She was just trying to hit her as hard as she could because it had gotten really desperate. It had gotten really violent and somebody needed a win. It felt real by the end. And I think the combination of the heat and the stuff that they'd done to work up to that in those latter stages when they were kind of going at 100 miles an hour all of a sudden elevated this beyond what might have what might have been an in-ring failure, but was absolutely going to be a home run from the entrances 
onwards like this absolutely couldn't have failed from the entrances because it, like the company were vindicated thunder rosa was vindicated as a baby face for being just so beloved in a hometown as was Britt baker as a heel um and i think all of that elevated a match which at points sagged but i'm going to blame aw's over reliance on this stuff more than i'm the women because they've put in an ungodly shift to get it there tone spectacle the occasion atmosphere all of it was completely nailed and ultimately, those are the most important things. Um, this is crafted quite poorly to a degree, if you want to be really, really um, harsh about it. The problem, I don't think the... It's just personal mileage will vary. I don't think the complete overabundance of gimmickry and plunder matters as much to my personal experience of what I find a visceral spot. Like, I'm not desensitised to it, I can understand why someone like Hamlet would be. The problem is, if you do it too much, you invite comparison. MGF and CM Punk treated thumbtacks like a C4 explosive and got that spot so much more over than they did here. They just instantly like flat backed into those tacks. I can't remember the exact duration between getting them on the canvas and then bumping on them, but it was nowhere near. They were nowhere near sold for long enough as yeah. this thing that could really, really hurt you. But for whatever reason, it just clicked between these two performers and the the weird failings of the story before this night where you thought, are they working so terribly together in angles and in matches because they just don't like each other? And it's not the kind of, oh, you're laying in thicker with like people you don't like, like Tully and Magnum. Mm-hmm. Or is it just that really awkward... Brett versus Sean at WrestleMania 12. Like, it really can go both ways. And I thought it was going, like, the, the, the wrong way between these two. But it just, I don't know, like, the, the rushed pace and kind of doubled his fury and how much they hated each other. And I think the spectacle and the backdrop and the noise and the heat really, really did help. One bit of craft that I did really enjoy between the sort of, like, rushed pacing, which kind of worked, but also on a fundamental level, they did wrong things. One really well-crafted spot is where they did the ref bump and Britt Baker kind of got the visual win or she would have got the three count had the ref been there. Not only did it kind of put her over, like protected her, but it was like the heel getting a just desserts. So if you look back to uh, Revolution, it was Thunder Rosa getting all of those visual wins and she would have had it won if. So when Baker would have had it won if, it was like, well... You should have thought that before you were a complete dick as a heel. So I thought that spot was really, really inspired. Uh, but elsewhere, just tonal masterpiece, if not a match masterpiece. And I did like the bit with the, the new referee getting introduced. There's a, it was a brief panic on my end of, oh, God, that door's open. Like, are they going to do another screwy? Like, I know they, I figured that they weren't, obviously. But just that element of doubt of, like, the door's open... We know what happens when Britt Baker's mates are allowed into matches. And, well, who knows what could have happened. But, yeah, I I, I think there was faults in this match. Um, but, like you say, the right conclusion and a hell of a reaction afterwards. And if you haven't, like I said, go and check out social media for the uh, the immediate aftermath of all this. Because, like you say, I don't know whether it was timing issues or what, but it felt, felt very much like, congratulations, you're the champion. Lifting up, confetti. Right, bye. It was so 
so speedy. But they, as Hamlet sort of alluded to as well, that added to all the uh, the desperation from both competitors towards the end of this. But there we go. Another episode of AEW Dynamite in the books. Very enjoyable yet again. Uh, do let us know your thoughts on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at... Michael Hamlet. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, of course. But for now, my thanks to the Daddy Boys. Great to have you both back. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.